Hey, my name's Alex and this is my podcast, Alex Listens. Um, it's a podcast about philosophy, uh, AI, identity, politics, uh, race, or oh, identity politics and identity and politics are separate things if you're wondering. Um, yeah, hey, nice to meet you. Maybe I've already met you, maybe I haven't, if I haven't met you. Um, hi, I'm Alex, I'm 23. Uh, I'm on my final day of isolation, self-isolation. Um, and obviously, you know, I'm going to go out and shake hands with everyone and, um, yeah, you know, go and sneeze on people, um, as soon as I get out. But, uh, yeah. Um, so yeah. Hi, nice to meet you. You should follow me on Instagram and whatever. Um, I'm going to keep this introduction brief because you may have noticed that this episode is pretty long. Um, So I'm going to give you a brief uh, summary of what it's about and who it's with. So today I interviewed um, someone who I met uh, three or four years ago. Um, We were volunteering at the same um, NGO, non-for-profit. And uh, he is a, he studied economics. And initially I reached out to him because I was like, who the fuck am I going to talk to about the economics of coronavirus. I don't want to talk to some academic. I'm sick of academics. They all smell weird. Um, none of them smile. Um, and so, yeah, I sent Jeff a message and I was like, Hey dude, uh, let's talk about economics. Um, and he was like, yeah, sure. What do you want to ask me? And then I realized that I had so many questions about, um, how the coronavirus was going to, uh, bankrupt us personally and, uh, as in morally, um, and, uh, financially, economically. So, um, yeah, but then I, I quickly realized and remembered that Jeff is much richer, um, than his, uh, economic knowledge. Um, he is like me, a person, uh, with parents who are from overseas. Um, Jeff is Chinese and he's recently started working on a podcast about the Chinese experience in Melbourne. Um, And obviously this is something that, uh, is very interesting and important to me, um, talking about these experiences and exploring what it's like being non-white in predominantly white spaces and how, um, you know, it impacts, uh, your social status, your capacity to be socially mobile, um, and all kinds of things. Um, but also, you know, there's, uh, Jeff and I spoke about, um, you might see in the title that one of the things, one of the words that I used was simulation. And so we spoke about the simulation argument, um, which is pretty funny, uh, because, you know, it kind of, it sounds ridiculous, but, um, yeah, there's like, there are some pretty reasonable sounding arguments for us living in a simulation. Um, we also spoke about AI and, you know, cloning and the ethics of that kind of stuff. And then finally we moved on to, um, the economics of coronavirus and Jeff gave me, gave us, all of us, uh, an insight into some of the potential, uh, ways in which our society is going to change. Um, how are we going to spend afterwards? How are we going to spend now? What can we do to, if we want to, to avoid a, uh, you know, our economy falling to pieces? Um, cool. So lastly, uh, if you're enjoying my podcast, please consider supporting it. You can do so via Patreon. Patreon's really cool. It's really easy to sign up. Um, 
otherwise uh i'll put a link in the bio but yeah otherwise um you know like follow me on instagram get in contact dm me send me an email contact at alex.co um otherwise i also post videos on youtube um i've done some cool stuff on philosophy at least i think it's cool maybe you fucking hate me i don't know um but yeah anyway uh here we go. Ready for one and a half or whatever, two hours? I don't know. Maybe. Bye. I just told you that I did because I thought that it was okay to lie. Like, what should I care if I Well, dude, hello. Hey, man. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. Good? Well, like, take two. Take two. Yeah, take two. Yeah. Take two. Yeah, shit. Everyone listening, Jeff and I tried to do this two days ago, but it didn't work. Yeah, it was my fault. No, no, no. My, um, my, my thing stopped recording like five minutes into like a 40 minute conversation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I didn't really realize until I opened the thing and I was like, fuck, I cooked it. But taking extra measures. What's that? It's going to be good. Yeah, I think, I think we're going to be good this time. I'm watching it like a whore. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, I'm watching mine too. Everything is very precarious at the moment, including my microphone and my laptop. I pray, I pray, man. Anyway, I pray um, for you too. Thank you. One thing that I did very late into our last conversation was actually get you to introduce yourself. So, like, oh yeah, uh, I did. Yeah, I did it like forty minutes in. I was like, oh, oh that's right, I hey, remember. Dude, yeah. Like for the people who don't know you, like so. But like, actually, maybe it's wise to do it pretty early on. So for the people who don't know you, who are you? Me? Well, my name is Jeff. <laughs> Literally, that is my name, not the joke. <laughs> Side note, that movie like Loki like ruined a year of my life because everyone was making that joke. Like, Which movie was it again? Um, 22 Jump Street. Uh, you know what? I actually haven't seen it. I've seen like yeah. the meme, but. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like uh, you go into Toots and um, you At know, uni. first. Yeah. So oh, first class, no. it's like icebreakers, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, introduce yourself. What are you studying and stuff? And so I'd be like, oh, hey guys, like my name's Jeff. And they'd be like, ha nice one. I'd be like, no, that, that's, that's actually my name. <laughs> and it, yeah, it was a really awkward thing. It was funny at first, and then it just got kind of got kind of old. Oh. Anyway, I digress. Uh, so yeah, my name is Jeff. Hey, um, Jeff, man. What's hey. up? That's pretty fucking funny, dude. What's your real name? <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> this, I'm done. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> uh, um, and uh, oh, fuck, this is one of those tough questions. What do you say? I guess I studied a Bachelor of Arts and I majored in economics and Asian studies. I was particularly interested in sort of his history mostly, but a lot of the things that the sociological factors that tied into like particular times in history, particularly Chinese history which is what I am. I'm Chinese. And Both your parents? Yeah. I also found out I was one-eighth Thai like four years ago. Whoa. Which was, which was a, honestly like a huge moment for me because I was like, oh, that's cool. Hmm. Do you know uh, which side? My, my grandpa is half Thai. He was born in Thailand. Whoa. He was the oldest of nine siblings. And basically my great-grandfather told him to move to China so he could get a better education. Um, but I had no idea until four years ago when I heard him speaking Thai over the phone. I was like, how do you know how to speak Thai? And he was just like, I'm half Thai. <laughs> and like, 
it shouldn't because i'm only one eighth so it shouldn't really have like a huge impact but like after that I, it like kind of changed my identity a little bit i was like oh i'm like you learn a little mixed kind of <laughs> kind of a thing and yeah and what up well, fuck i lost my train of thought oh yep so currently i'm working in consulting um i won't say which firm just in case something happens or anything like that and i guess hobbies wise i love to cook and i love to eat oh the sourdough hey yeah yeah dude i remember when you messaged me about that yeah. and i told you how long it takes to make it loaf of sourdough. i don't think like, i replied yeah you're like nah you fucked that i'm out yeah what did you say i remember the message you were like 72 hours fucking yeast to crunch and i was like what the <laughs> fuck man Nah, it'll start to finish. It's like a 30-hour process. That's awful, dude. As yeah, in like 30 hours of like human to dough contact? No, 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 okay. no, no, no. No, actual active time is probably like oh, two hours. Okay. And every other time is just it doing its thing, just like resting and fermenting and all these awesome things happening. But oh. honestly, like when you go out and you see a loaf of bread for like six bucks and you're like, wow, that's really expensive... There's a lot of effort that went into that one loaf of bread. And it is, I honestly think it's undervalued. Well, like six, fix six bucks is like not enough considering that most bakers wake up at like two in the morning to start baking. And then they're like, it's manual labor because you're, a lot of the time they're making a lot of loaves. Mm. So it's a huge mass of dough and you have to like lug it around and, you know, it's tiring work and then yeah it's i don't i don't think it's yeah i think it's absolutely undervalued sure do you go around yeah. like congratulating bakers and stuff well i'm not that i'm not gonna be that weird guy that goes in and just fit like just like shakes i, the I hand, love like, you thanks man <laughs> i appreciate you <laughs> i appreciate the hard work man i understand you <laughs> maybe i should start i mean that, that could probably help them out a little bit so i might actually do that well, my mum told me that um, she had to pre-order bread a few days before, like, like because all the bread was selling out in a bakery oh, in really? Brunswick. Yeah, she had to yeah. like, pre-order and then, yeah, there was like a queue, but she'd pre-ordered. And so she just walked up to the front and yeah, man, what the hell is happening outside? I still haven't been outside, dude. It's been. Yeah, I know. I know. It's been How many more days do you have of ISO? Two more. Two more? Yeah. Yeah. And then no, I look I, forward to it. I don't, I don't know. Ah, yeah. I mean, I don't really know what I'm going to do. Go for a walk? Yeah, go for a walk. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you've been cooped up that whole time. I would I would go nuts if I had to do the, the pure 14 days of isolation. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've heard about like the, um, like the next, because we're in stage three now. Yeah. Yeah. And what is it? Is It's two people, yeah? Groups. Two people. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And then if you're caught if flouting the law, you get you get one and a half grand. Yeah. On spot it's a fine. Fat fine. Yeah. Shit, man. Think about all the dough. Think about all the bread you could buy, man. Six dollars a loaf, one and a half yeah, grand. Yeah, dude. Fuck do the math. You're yeah. you're the economist, dude. It's twenty five it's it's two fifty loaves of bread. Holy Yeah, shit. Wow. Look at that. Yeah. Two hundred and fifty. Yeah fucking that's like that's like a full morning sure anyway anyway um <laughs> yeah wait 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 i'm interested about this like this like addition to your identity when you learned you were thai um 
did you like have you engaged have you explored that part of your history much or um i think what ended up happening was after that i wanted to sort of learn a lot more about the culture mm. i think before that i wasn't really an area like a, a place i was particularly interested in and what ended up happening was because for me i think the easiest way to I think the easiest way to like understand history initially is to literally eat their food. Yeah. Because food itself is an amalgamation of experiences in the history that a country has gone through. And so I started really going out and like finding good places for Thai food to eat. It's not just Pad Thai or Pad Siu or all that crap, like proper stuff, like the things that revolved around a lot of fermentation, like a meal built around sticky rice stuff like that and i started buying cookbooks and i started looking at all these online resources and i was like recreating the tastes and all that sort of stuff and that was kind of like the the beginning of it and it didn't really climax until i um all my grandpa's siblings came to australia Hmm. and it was honestly one of the most beautiful experiences when they saw my grandfather because they, they hadn't seen each other since birth wow but there was this like intrinsic connection that they had that was like incredibly strong and just watching that um, was was awesome. And then communicating with them was obviously tough because they couldn't speak English and I couldn't speak any Thai. But I think just showing, just gestures. I was genuinely interested to like learn some things. Cooking was a big one that we did together. Just them showing me like the proper way to do things and that sort of allowed me to develop like a much stronger appreciation. So I really do want to go back and visit. Mm. Um, and it be, and it's nice knowing that there might be family there, mm. um, however distant, um, to, to show me around. But I, I don't know why it had that impact on me because it's such a small f- fraction of you. It's one-eighth. That's, that's oh, still, very, still. Yeah, yeah but it just kind of it's hard to iterate like how it made me feel i think it was it's definitely a positive thing but it just made me feel a bit more complete in a weird way Mm. yeah yeah Mm. i think that was kind of yeah i think it was just coinciding with that stage in my life where i was feeling kind of lost and sort of like knowing that fact made me feel a lot better Mm. do you have yeah right um yeah i went through like a a kind of similar experience in terms of learning about culture from lost or what i thought was like a lost part of my family so i like i I, at least to i i'm pretty sure that i'm half macedonian and half algerian like and that goes back for a long time yeah um but i'd only ever met part of my mom's family um I'd only met the Macedonian side. And then in 2006, no, 2017, I went to France and met some of my dad's siblings. He also has a huge family. He is the eldest Mm. of 10. Um, And yeah, I didn't, I didn't engage too much with the cuisine because I'm not like, it doesn't sound like I'm anywhere near as passionate about cooking um, as you are. But yeah, my like, I also felt a kind of completeness. Um, but I guess for me, it felt like, uh, yeah, just like I'd never seen people that looked like me before. And I've Mm. said this a few times on the podcast, but like 
that that was actually a really like really yeah like a a really fulfilling experience mm. seeing yeah. like other people who who you haven't been raised around but who like gesticulate in a similar way and who like um use similar phrasing and who have similar interests um and all and all of them look like you and yeah mm. yeah family man family is like yeah and how like um what what about your parents like how how did they end up in melbourne how did that happen uh, because you're so doing you're doing a podcast about this right i am oh here's the plug here's the plug <laughs> here's the plug um yeah so do you have a yeah, name for it yeah so it's um uh, it's called as i am uh, and the idea is to it's just to present yourself in the most authentic light it's raw with all its imperfections and uh, that's that because that's who we are as individuals like we we want it's i think it's ideal to just be as raw and as real and true to yourself as possible and it, the idea to like for the name derived from the logo which it makes more sense when you see it but when you look at because the podcast is about like the asian australian experience growing up and a lot of the things that revolve around an Asian identity and the topics surrounding it from representation um, to things like dating or how we're raised. But when you look at the name um, for our podcast, if you, if you look at the word Asian, imagine if you split that up into as I am mm. and then you add another stroke, it's as I am. Well, yeah. So that was the idea around the podcast. Uh, was like, that going intentional back- or like yeah yeah well, that, was, that was intentional so it was, it was just kind of a happy mistake how we ended up with the name but um we're quite happy with it and what it represents uh, i guess going back to your question my mum was 26 uh at the time she felt uh in the post cultural revolution days that china wasn't the best place for her um it's not as it's definitely not what it looks like right now it's not the superpower of the world uh so she felt that she wanted more opportunity so she packed up us one suitcase of stuff and a rice cooker and she yeah yeah that's all she had like uh she tells me it was 15 kilos of stuff plus a rice cooker (laughs) and she went to sydney first actually so she was yeah 26 and and single and she literally just lived out of a share house of like 12 people kind of lived a bit of a hippie life. I've, I've seen the photos. <laughs> they're, they're pretty, they're pretty groovy. I'm not going to lie. She looks very cool. Like outfit goals in a lot of ways. Whoa. Yeah. And she just like worked in restaurants and literally did it with no intention of doing anything else. Like there wasn't a, a, a need to like study or she was just kind of like, wanted to live in a Western country mm. and just wanted to experience life in an alternative way. And I think what ended up happening was um, she went back to China for a little bit, uh, met my dad, and then they moved over here together and then they had me. Mm. Uh, yeah. Are you an so only child? I am an only child. Oh, um, same. Yeah. So the well, my dad apparently wanted three kids, but then after mum went through pregnancy once, she was like, fuck that, never again. <laughs> which, 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 is, which is absolutely fair. Yeah. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But 
yeah, that, that's kind of like the the general gist of their move over here. It was like a lot of immigrants in search of a better life. Mm. Um, I think for a lot of countries that go through war or go through a period of economic depression, it's you're always looking outward mm. where you're trying to enter a place with more opportunities. And I think sometimes, you know, that connection is with a country that's has a capitalist structure to it. And that's kind of where my parents thought was the best place to raise a family. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I guess my grand, my maternal grandparents also felt the same thing. They migrated in the sixties. Um, my mom was nine when they moved from Macedonia. Um, and yeah, I guess the intention was to have access to a richer economy and mm. to have, yeah, I guess I imagine that was the primary motivation to like to have access to a richer economy. And I guess the implication of that was that my mum and her brother were going to be able to have better lives because they would have access to more developed things like university. And not that they didn't have, I mean, Macedonia was part of Yugoslavia at the time and um, Yugoslavia was... Yeah, from the stories that I've heard from my mom and her friends, it was like uh, a a mostly like a um, pretty uh, an alive and thriving uh, place. Like I think the Yugoslav passport was pretty powerful, and you were able to travel around Europe and whatever. But yeah, like I think one of the consequences for them, from my mom and my dad both relocating to Melbourne. My parents met in Paris and that's where I was born, but they decided to come here because one, the native language is English. Two, uh, there's a lot of money in Australia. And three, um, with English and money, presumably, uh, their child would be set, would be better set up to Mm. like, yeah, but I, I don't know because it's not as if it's not as if either of my parents are like these diehard, like materialist consumers mm. who are like all we want is money. But mm. it's like, yeah, like I think really what they want is like, I think what yeah what they want is security. Um, yeah, and like I understand them and I understand why that's something that they want, but like. Yeah, I, I guess there's been, I feel as though there's been a big consequence for me and for them, which is that like, the the I don't really feel like I belong in Melbourne yet. Mm. Um, what do you, how do you feel about that? It's an interesting way to think about it. Um, I, I feel an attachment to Melbourne, personally. Um, I think growing up here, it's it's a different experience between growing up in I think it's a different thing when you ask um growing up in Melbourne versus like feeling Australian. Yeah. Um to me that's two different things. Whilst I feel at home in uh, Melbourne, like the idea of feeling Australian has been something that's been quite a topic of contention for me growing up. And I think when I was younger, I was very much aligned to like the idea of being, you know, Asian, like English was my third language. It was the last thing I learned. I didn't want to speak it uh, because I grew up in a household 
where everyone just spoke Cantonese or Mandarin. And like when I went to kindergarten, those were all the kids. Uh, and like I wanted to hang out with them and all that sort of stuff. And then I think as I got older, I went to I went to a private school and it was majority, I think like 80, 85% uh, Western males. So there was this desperation for me to fit in. Like I just, I just didn't want to be Asian for the longest time. And I remember this conversation I had with a friend of mine at the time. Um, he's an Asian guy. And I think it was just at recess. And basically, I, I basically told him like, I wish I was white. Mm-hmm. Like I would give anything to be white because life would just be so much easier. I didn't say it in like a serious sense. It was kind of like an offhand kind of comment. And basically he looked at me and he said, I'm going to go. I can't look at you right now. And that didn't really, that statement didn't really have any meaning to me until about three years ago when I looked back and I was like, oh, like, damn, that was a fucked thing for me to say. Um, And especially like to, like to me, he's much more comfortable in who he is. And like hearing that from someone who looks like him would just be a huge source of disappointment, I think. Um, So even now, I think like, am I Australian? Like, like what, what, like what is Australian? I think right now when you have all these strong, like, nationalist movements and like right wingers and there's sort of like they're sort of painting this ideal of what it means to be like an Australian or an American it's just like I don't fit any of that profile mm. so it's kind of like do you even want to be Australian at this mm. point uh, it's a bit of a tangent but essentially that's kind of like how I think about it like yes Melbourne is home for me but like at the moment no I don't really feel Australian mm. yeah well like I yeah I, I had um a lot of what you said mirrors my experience and like i've i've i said similar things to what you said to your friend um when i was younger as well like i went out of my way to try and copy white physical traits like for a while i straightened my hair Mm. um like in primary school like uh, a few people were like hey dude like you're super hairy and i like shaved my arms and legs and i was like seven or something when that happened jeez um and yeah like obviously i didn't really like it it only and like i i i always thought that i was because i grew up in like in carlton north which is Mm. like mostly white middle class and then like some remnants of like like uh southern european migrants um there's like the mafia as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> can't forget them. Yeah, can't forget, can't forget those boys. Um, yeah, uh, and yeah, like I, I think when I was like 19 or something, I realized that like I had this backlog of history that wasn't white and that had fought very hard against, like especially on my dad's side with the French uh, colonial regime in Algeria. Um, they had fought very hard not to be white and to retain their their color and their um their yeah i guess non the the yeah just their their independence um and yeah for me like 
Yeah, I think only like with this through this podcast, I've been able to um, really have a have a think about how I feel being someone who's raised in Melbourne. And I think I agree with you. Melbourne is home for me. Um, I feel safe and comfortable here. And, mm. um, and I know that there are people here who will look after me and who care about me, but outside of Melbourne, I, I don't, I don't really know. Like, I don't know what it means to be Australian. Um, I feel like the Australian national identity changes pretty radically between each state maybe even Mm. each city because really like i feel like there's hardly any dialogue between like melbourne maybe only like melbourne and sydney like i don't know i barely know anything about perth adelaide darwin like brisbane i don't even know what happens in canberra like um yeah and so it's hard to kind of isolate what it means to be australian but if it means like if it means to be someone who's welcomed as someone who like isn't white um which i i don't i don't think that's what it means to be australian maybe that's what it means to be part of like alternative progressive circles in melbourne so yeah there's like a a weird and pretty strong or pretty pronounced divide between the group that i feel like i'm part of and then the kind of general impression of what it means to be australian but i still i still don't yeah I don't, I don't know. Yeah, no, I feel that. I feel that a lot. I think um, it happened a lot when I was going overseas. And I think this is what contributed to this, like, um, not feeling as Australian sort of thing. Like, I think from an external point of view, as much as we love to rave about the idea of acceptance and multiculturalism, Australia externally is still viewed as a, a white country. Mm. Like, the amount of times... I was, when I was overseas and traveling and they, like one of the most common things you hear is like, where are you from? And I'll be like, Australia. And for some reason, there will always be like China. And, you know, I, I was my girl because I always got so mad about this. And basically my girlfriend was like, oh, no, it's because you say it so fast. Like you say like Australia. But like. Dude, that still does not sound like... I know, like, the na at the end, like, the ah sound, like, kind of sounds like China, but it is still... Dude, it sounds compl- nothing like It's China. a completely <laughs> different thing, and it would yeah. shit me so hard. And it, like, kept happening. Like, people would... That, like, the amount of times I was going to ask that question, like, no, 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 no. Where are you really from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The classic... Like, the classic. The classic, like... Yeah, yeah, that, and uh, that, yeah, fortunately, I, I haven't heard that question for, well, I guess I haven't heard it for two weeks because I haven't been outdoors <laughs> for two weeks. But, <laughs> um, yeah, like, it it's it's a weird, it's, it's, yeah, like, I think I've become, there was a period of time where I would be really, really offended by people asking that question because like built into that question is like a a stereotype of whiteness mm. and like if you say you're from a country that stereotypically is white and you don't present as being someone who's white there's like a, a weird confusion and people are like oh where are you really from but yeah. i don't know like um i've, I've kind of 
I think there's like just I don't think people I don't think white I don't think many white people know what the implications of asking that question are Um, because yeah like it's it's really it's really harmful Um, and one thing that one thing that frustrates me about my podcast is that all of the people who listen or most of the people who listen are, are, are aware of the implications of that question and so they probably don't ask it Mm. um so I, yeah i don't i don't know how to like i don't know how to engage with people who do ask that question although although i went on a date with this person who like paraded as being like this super like like woke pc like yeah, yeah. lefty <laughs> and then like first question was like wow like I've, i haven't seen hair like yours for so long like <laughs> where are you from and I was like, fucking hell um so Uh, actually that's a good point then because um then the question becomes like how do you actually approach that question because if it's like a lot of the time perhaps it's just like as you were saying like they don't understand implications a lot of the time maybe it's just a reflex Mm. you know um but then if for example a bunch of uh i guess white people were listening to this Mm. And they have asked that question before, but now because of the last couple of minutes, they understand that it's probably not the best thing to ask. Mm. What would you say is the correct way to approach that question? Because uh, like, obviously I think there is, there is genuine interest out yeah, there. Like yeah. some people are probably genuinely interested yeah, in it, but, yeah. but obviously it's like, how would you ask that question? Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I imagine most people, like most people are actually curious. Um, yeah. I think that like, like, yeah. Uh, uh maybe okay so i think what what you don't say is if you say i think it's okay to say like where are you from i think that's fine yeah where are you from is completely yeah yeah, Yeah. where are you from and then you say ah australia what you don't say is oh but where are you really from but you don't say that so the question i think like yeah as i was saying i think saying where are you from is fine i think the the wrong the next step the wrong step to take is the step in the direction of where are you really from? Because I think that is, even though it might come from a place of curiosity, I think it's attached with all of this, like, uh, anti, like this anti non-white, um, baggage because you know, like where are you really from? The underlying message is you don't look like you're actually from, you don't look like you're supposed to be from that place. Or you don't look like what the media is has portrayed as being the like standard image of someone that's from that place. So maybe maybe like the next question is like maybe if someone said like what's your background or like uh, I like, like what's your background. I'm, yeah, yeah, I like that. I think it's yeah, yeah. I think yeah, I think it's literally the the way that the that question is structured. Where are you really from? And a lot of the time, so yeah, as, we, as I was saying. It's it's the when they emphasize the really, and I think that's the fact that you've put emphasis on that word shows malicious intent in a lot of ways, and that that's kind of the problem. But yeah, I like I like what is your background? Uh, but yeah, like okay, here, here's 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 the question that's really bothering me at the moment. Um, how so? Like, I think I think a lot of my audience are white. Um, interestingly two-thirds of my audience are women 
Um, and I guess that probably says something about the kinds of things that, uh, and most of my listeners are between the ages of 20 and 35. So I guess maybe there's, maybe something can be said about the different difference of interest of, um, people between those ages, but I'm not sure. Um, how do you think, so like, are you hopeful that, are you hopeful, like, is, is one of the aims of your podcast to, uh, like, because I, I, I genuinely think that my podcast or one concern is that my podcast is kind of stuck in some form of an echo chamber where I have certain beliefs I say things, people are like, oh, yep, that's what I believe. You said it nicely. And then it just kind of keeps going around and around. And I don't, I'm not in contact with like the conservatives or the people who are like anti-Muslim, anti-Asian. Yeah. And I imagine because like why, like people who follow me on, on social media, they're not going to be the kinds of people who are like anti-people of color, anti because like, yeah, that's not what my, my podcast isn't anti people of color. So how do you like, how, how do you hope to diversify your listenership? How do you hope to engage with people on the outside? Yeah. So that's, that's a big thing that, um, my friend who I'm doing this podcast with and I sort of talk about because when you create such specific content, like it's literally about Asian experience. Mm. A lot of the time, that's just going to mean most people, like a lot of people aren't going to listen to it because it doesn't relate to them. They have, like, they don't understand a lot of what we're going to talk about. Like they haven't lived through that experience. And I'm sure a lot of people would be like, well, why would I spend 45 minutes, an hour listening to this content? That doesn't mean anything for me. But our sort of ideal would be you have maybe predominantly Asian speak like listeners and these people will get a lot of value out of it in the sense that they can maybe hear about an experience that they went through and through the process of us unpacking it and trying to rationalize it in a way it helps them do the same thing Mm. and it helps them overcome some of the potential traumas of that of that experience and and that's one of the biggest goals that we want to do we want to sort of bring a lot of this topic out to light because in asian cultures um one of the main things is just that you don't complain like you you suck it up and you do it um a lot of a lot of that is how we were raised Mm. it's sort of like by the iron fist in a lot of ways and to an extent um which is a lot of that is rooted in confucianism uh a lot of China's cultural and societal values are rooted in Confucianism, which is sort of respecting the wider community, uh, respecting your elders and all that sort of, yeah, boils down to like a culture of like just acceptance and just put your head down and deal with it. And obviously that's not healthy because you bottle all this stuff up and it releases itself in weird ways later on. And so, yeah, we want to help people through this experience, but maybe just maybe like two people who aren't Asian listen to it. And then they sort of listen and they learn something new, learn a new perspective. It's not necessarily that we want them to 
understand our beliefs. It's not just like, oh, yeah, Asian people like this, Asian people like that. But I think there's just no, no knowledge out there. Hmm. There's no knowledge of what it's like to be Asian. So it's more about them listening to our experiences and then forming their own opinion around it. And hopefully hmm. it is, you know, a positive one or maybe just just empathy at the end of the day. And potentially hmm. they just reiterate that message to a couple more people. And then that's kind of how that ideally spreads. Hmm. Um, but it is it is a risk, I think, sort of if you create this content and a lot of it is just about talking about important things like representation that in, in a way affects everybody and includes everybody. Um, how do you sort of get your point to a, like a broader audience? And it's a tough one. Like how, how have you sort of gone with that? Have you actually put any effort into sort of generating a diverse listener base or has it just been like, you've just let it happen organically and it goes however it goes? Um, well, one thing that you said that, that resonated with me was um the hope that you know like uh i guess i haven't really aimed my like uh my podcast at a particular ethnic group Mm. um uh, or racial group uh um and yeah so i think like there i think there is quite a bit of although yeah what i think the product has been um or the outcome has been that like, I think most of my friends are white. Um, and that's something that I realized recently uh, because, like, my world was mostly white, mm. um, pretty much exclusively white until I realized that I wasn't, um, which was also recent. Um, so, yeah, I think, like, my hope is that, uh, yeah, similar, very similar to yours that, like, because one thing that I've become really interested in, in like, and this is something that I hope to pursue in philosophy, um, it's the idea of like experience being the main way in which uh, knowledge about something can be made to feel real. Mm. Um, because like, I guess one example is Corona. So the West for a long time was like, We've, we're fucking beyond this. Like, we're beyond this shit. Like, we've got structures in place where, like, we're advanced and the East isn't. And so the East is going to suffer. Mm. And then, and then like, Italy gets... Yeah, the West slowly starts kind of being degraded by this, this virus. And then people actually have their lives impacted. And then their knowledge of the situation is changed. But it seems to be changed at the very last minute when they subjectively experience something different so Mm. um i think that's what i hope to kind of i'm not hoping that this virus is that my podcast becomes a pandemic um but like yeah i guess my hope is that people as you said are going to have an insight into different ways of being Mm. um i don't know being a person of color being someone who's non-white being someone who's mixed race um being someone who hasn't had the privilege of kind of being part of the majority ethnic group, racial group, um, and then having having a different way of asking questions and thinking about people who um, don't look like them. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, one thing that I was thinking of doing was like recording an episode and just being like, don't listen to it if you're like a lefty. 
Yeah. And do, like, yeah, I was literally going to call it like, listen, if you're a conservative. Yeah. And I was just like, hey, like, <laughs> what's going on? Like, let's, <laughs> let's like, let's, let's, let me, let me tell you a little about my life. Yeah. Um, and then the hope is that like, well, yeah, yeah. I think that's what I want to do. And I hope that like people will send that to like, yeah, share it around with their like, cons- if they know any conservative people, because I actually don't know too many. Um, which is an issue. It's an issue. It is an like, issue. Yeah. 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 Like my podcast, the people I've interviewed have, it's like been totally partisan. Like I've literally only interviewed people on the left. Yeah. Um, and that's been intentional. There's like, I, I'm not going to lie about that. It hasn't just been one big progressive coincidence. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I'm still thinking about how I can engage with like, with people who feel very differently about the world than I do. Yeah. Um, I like that. No, that's a good way to do it. I think that's a good way to go about it. One one of the things I'm sort of envisioning, like next steps for this, is like some somehow create a space where people can just share stories, which which sounds like something that already exists in a lot of ways. It's a it's a Facebook group or it's a uh what's that one called? It's not a Twitch. It's a Discord. Hmm. There's quite a few, there's a few opportunities, but I'm, I'm just looking for something. I'm, I just want to create like an, a space that's like just completely open and raw for like everybody. And it's just pure vulnerability. And that is, I think it's just like, a, like delusions of grandeur in a lot of ways. So like Reddit, but people are being serious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, in a, in a lot of ways, because like, I think a lot of, at the end of the day, a lot of a lot of so much hate is just lack of knowledge. Yeah, man, lack of experience, lack of experience. Yeah, yeah, like you were saying, you yeah. lack of experience, lack of knowledge, and mm. I think we've just been conditioned to fear what we don't know. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. like I I don't blame I don't blame people who are like who think that like my dad who presents as like you know he looks his skin is darker than mine Mm. um like he looks more arabic than i do yeah um and like i don't blame people who don't know any arabs and who you know don't have aren't like the types to critically engage with the news and then are presented with this image of the arab world as being a threat Mm. to like democracy and then seeing an arabic looking person like my dad and being like well fuck that guy like, yeah. he's just going to come here and take my job. Yeah. Um, I don't blame, I, like, I don't blame the people who feel that way. I'm just like, yeah, I, it's it's just hard to, it's hard to implant the necessary experiences into the world of that person yeah. so they can think differently about people like us who aren't white and who yeah. don't come from like established middle-class white families who have been here for a long time. Yeah. Um, no, I, I completely feel that, like that, that blame part. Yeah, where it's just like, so much media just, like their whole purpose is to create buzz, yeah. hype, yeah, and they will change shit in order to do that. And if you are a person who's just, I guess, just a bit more susceptible, or like you just you you read news and you don't know any better, yeah, and you just start to yeah begin to form those views, like. Um, when so they sort of portray coronavirus, for example, it's just like, oh, you know, it, this is 
clear association with Chinese people. Mm. It's just like, yeah, yes, it did start in China, but not necessarily like only Chinese people can get it. I think this was broadly before um, it started to really blow up in Western countries, particularly Italy. And yeah, there was just so many stories I'd heard from friends who said their relatives were just haggled on the street like stay the fuck away from me like you've got the virus and stuff like that and you know like i it's it's hard not to get angry about it but at the same time i think just blaming people for being conservative and inconsiderate about that sort of stuff isn't the way it's not the solution yeah well like ignorance it's hard to like like people who are like unfortunately ignorant i don't know if yeah it just it doesn't really do much at the same time like the behavior is not unacceptable but like yeah i i genuinely believe that like without without actually knowing what a chinese person is like without actually befriending a chinese person or without actually befriending an arab or without actually befriending whatever minority whichever minority it is that you hold certain views about. I genuinely, I believe that it's easier to actually feel a resentment towards that kind of person because like yeah. they're not even, they're not real in your world. Yeah. They're real. Like they're only made real by media and by yeah. these things. And you have no way of verifying whether or not they're actually true. Exactly. Um, yeah. Fuck. Um, okay. Anyway. There are so, dude, we could like, yeah, we could fucking yeah. talk for months, man. Dude, um, it's only like, it's <laughs> only 40 minutes already. This is already the length of a podcast. Isn't yeah, it? shit, yeah. shit. Um, all right. Well, one other thing that I wanted to talk to you about is, um, so I guess there are three main things that I was hoping to talk about. So one yeah. was, I feel like we've, we've said a lot about the first thing, which was uh, the experience of an outsider in Melbourne. Um, the second thing that I wanted to talk about is something that, that accidentally came up last time we were talking, which was you asked me what I wanted to do as like, as a dream job or something, or what would I actually want to do? And I said, uh, one, I wanted to like work in human rights law Two, uh, I wanted to like maybe do psychiatry and three, I wanted to kind of pursue ethics um and work for that uh the institute of existential risk at oxford which is like that place where it's like an advisory thing for like ai tech companies and shit and they like tell them they're like hey like watch out with this robot like you might fuck up the world and Mm. here are the ethical implications of it and then you said dude have you heard about fucking Rocco's Basilisk? <laughs> and I said, I said, Jeff, what the fuck is Rocco's Basilisk? <laughs> and then, and then, yeah. So dude, what the fuck is Rocco's Basilisk? Okay. So I think it's probably good that we're, we're um, re-recording this. Cause I think how I explained it last time wasn't ideal. And actually I'm still not a hundred percent sure on it. Cause I just remembered we were meant to talk about it like two minutes before we started recording. <laughs> And I wouldn't like quickly had a look at it, but essentially, um, it's a, it's a thought experiment, uh, that in the future, when the singularity is achieved, 
um, the, it's, it's like an all powerful, it's the, it's the point where artificial intelligence is like surpasses humanity and becomes this like ultimate entity, essentially a God in many aspects of, of how we understand it today. And essentially like when it reaches that point, it's essentially omnipotent, you know, it has the ability to create simulations. We'll get into the simulations thing later because I love talking about simulations. Uh, but essentially it has the ability to create simulations and in those simulations, I, it could possibly just create a simulation of the world we're living in right now. Like how you and I are sitting right here, our parents in the other room. And it could use this as an opportunity to try understand its creation. Um, and use this as an opportunity to sort of see who contributed to its realization and who didn't. And how it could do that is sort of, it's just kind of observing us. It's observing our actions. It's observing uh, the behaviors that we do in our day-to-day -day life. And if essentially, if it deems that we have not contributed to its existence, it could punish us assuming that we're living in that simulation, right. which we very could well be. Right, right. Or it could yeah. just make an alternative simulation yeah. with us well, you and, just, and we yeah. just suffer. Yeah, it. exactly. Yeah. And so the, the danger of it is now that you, the dear listeners, have heard this thought experiment, then you could potentially be here because understanding the existence of the Rocco's Basilisk essentially kind of pulls you into it because now you could be part of the simulation. And if you don't actually contribute to its fruition, you could be punished in the simulation that you and I and everyone else could possibly be living in right now. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, like, I mean, I, I, I like, I guess I, I like this thought experiment and I like it because... It's kind of like, it's like playful, but it's like super wicked at the same time. Mm. Um, and like when you first told it to me, I was like, I don't believe that it's possible for people to be retrospectively for like, I don't like if I die, like if I die right now um, and then this AI, this post singularity AI discovers that I haven't contributed to it being made into something i was like i don't believe that i can be punished if i've already died like i don't yeah. think it's possible to retrospectively harm a dead person or like yeah, yeah, yeah. like something that's, I, expl I explained it quite badly so. no 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 but that, that's oh. okay that's like but i guess the same thing stands a bit although the idea of like an alternative simulation being created where we're just subjected to like 80 years of like suffering as like that that that's like that's really concerning um yeah but, like it the, is the thing that yeah 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 like <laughs> it, it's really it's really it's really fucked up um but the thing that i i guess my issue with this thought experiment and i guess you're not supposed to do this with the thought experiment but why would the ai ever want to do that because like yeah. if the yeah. ai becomes <clears throat> omnipotent and it can do anything that it wants which like, 
I think I think they're called I think that's called super AI. I'm not sure. Like AI that becomes so intelligent that like uh it like begins um it realizes that the, that in order to advance its own interests, it has to stifle the advancement of other AI projects and so I don't know it goes out and kills all of the like AI oh. research teams and whatever. So like I like this. Yeah, but like I, I don't know. I just I don't know what the AI's motivation would be. Like why would well, it Yeah. Yeah. yeah but then like that's a weird thing about the singularity like the singularity presupposes that it's possible for something to have access to human consciousness or something similar to human consciousness mm. and i don't know if that's possible so like yeah in return in return to rocco's basilisk here's what i ask you do you think it's possible for anything that isn't a human being to experience consciousness. So this isn't just the living thing, right? This could be it could be a, a simulated yeah. consciousness. Yeah, it could be a simulated yeah. consciousness. Yeah. Well, in the simulation argument, um, there's actually some math involved, and it's basically uh, they take. Like go, from the, scratch, go from scratch. Go from scratch. I don't actually know the math oh, okay, off the top okay. of my head, but essentially, how they process it is: you every second, your brain, like the amount of synapses that fire, it's like tr- like a trillion or hundred millions or quadrillion. It's a lot, yeah. And then if you take that and multiply it out by sixty seconds for a minute, sixty minutes for an hour, twenty-four hours in a day. 365 days in a year and then eight years for like a standard human life you get to this like i think it's like three like quadrillion trillion trillion whatever the whatever it is and that's essentially theoretically speaking the computing cap like capacity needed to simulate a person's life right that is absolutely unachievable by today's standards yeah it is so far away that like it's inconceivable for the time being but i think yeah when you get when you reach those like superhuman super advanced societies eventually like i i believe that they probably might have enough computing power to be able to like simulate however many millions of lives or billions of lives of people in order to create these experiments but yeah one of the main arguments for the simulation thing is that like why would they do it mm. like this is essentially a god-like society with enough computing power to achieve whatever the fuck they wanted yeah we as humans living right now it's essentially like us looking at ants yeah like are you really that interested in what that ant's going to be doing for the duration of its life and I and like, do you care? Yeah. Like, is there any point in understanding that ant's life? Like, yeah. does it impact me in any way? And obviously, the answer is no. Oh, I guess unless you're an, um, is it an entomologist, a person that studies bugs? Maybe, maybe that way you um you're actually interested in ant's life. But for I, I guess the average person, you don't give a shit about an ant. You're probably going to step on him anyway. And I think for them, it's like a similar thing. So. I think whilst theoretically possible to create consciousness 
outside of just you and me, like as a normal human being. Um, but then like, cause, cause you just made an episode about consciousness in you. Yeah. 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 I was listening to bits of that. And then I guess like the argument is like, is it consciousness if it's not human? Yeah. Well, see, that's like, well, that that's the, that's the original question I asked you. Um, yeah. And like, and like, and like, it's like me going back to you is just my way of just saying I have no clue. No, but no like, idea. but like, so like I, I like that the maths of the simulation argument makes sense to me. Like you can get to a number of, of synapses, which have fired, which have given rise to a conscious experience over one's lifetime. Mm. But the thing that, so like for a while, there's this thing in philosophy called physicalism. Um, and the physicalist believes that all there is, is what can be measured and viewed by science. So if you get a brain and you copy it, all of the neurons, all of the, um, the lobes and shit. And like you get, you, you replicate a brain on a computer. The physicalist believes that you have consciousness because you have the thing responsible for producing it. So like if you copy all the neurons onto a hard drive and then you kind of click play and you let the neurons fire as they would Mm. in a normal brain, then supposedly you have like some weird form of consciousness on the hard drive or on the computer that's simulating this. But I don't like, I just, I just don't believe that. I don't believe like, but this is where like, this is where my, like the way I feel about religion becomes really confused because on one hand, I don't believe that there is a Judeo-Christian God, a God who is omnipresent, omnipowerful, uh, omnipotent. Oh, yeah. Omnipresent, um, oh, yep. whatever, the big three, omniscient, all-knowing. Um, if I say that there is more than what is observable by science, then I kind of open up this weird space for metaphysical arguments about the world. Mm. Um, but like, at the, and then, then there's like, then there's another argument, which is that science just can't explain some things like science. So like, I don't know if you got to at the end of the episode on consciousness. Did you get that far? No, I'm still, I'm still a little bit through it. Okay. I'm a bad friend. Oh, fuck you, man. I mean, it only <laughs> came out like six hours ago or something, but, <laughs> um, Towards the end, I introduced this. Tell me if I've lost you at any point, by the way. Yeah, no. I'm, okay. still, I'm still following. I will let you know, though. Okay. Um, uh, so, like, towards the end of the episode, I introduced this kind of binary introduced by, uh, articulated by an Australian philosopher called David Chalmers. And he says that there are two different ways of thinking about consciousness. There's the easy problem of consciousness and the hard problem of consciousness. The easy problem of consciousness is what could be recreated by a computer. So like, here's my hand. I like, I cut my hand and I feel pain. Yeah. And I go up to a scientist and I say, hey, dickhead, like, why do I feel pain? (laughs) And the scientist says, oh, well, gets a microscope, looks in my hand. He sees that like nerves have been damaged. He sees that there are, I think they're called T fibers. I think they're the fibers that fire when 
a part of your body has been damaged and that's the thing that generates the message of pain so like science can come up with a uh an objective explanation as to how some experiences occur so a computer could map that pathway from Mm. severed t fire to pain yeah but what the computer can't what what i believe the computer can't simulate is the experience of pain the actual experience of what it's like to be in pain so i don't i think that science can show what pain is it can say pain is a t-fiber firing and a production i don't know like things going to the bottom of your spine then to your brainstem Mm. and then like some experience and then the message goes back and it feels like it's throbbing and it feels hot or whatever but like i don't know if mapping any neural experience any neural pathway i don't know if getting a lifetime's worth of neural pathways and putting them on a supercomputer is actually going to show us or show anything what it's like to actually experience any of those things yeah but okay i yeah. don't i don't know what the actual product is though yeah. yeah okay so my question would then be when you think about the experience of pain it's this process of the cut occurring and then the the T fiber splitting which sends nerves through your to that to your brain which then tells you you're hurt right yeah that's the physical response yeah to me what it sounds like the experience of pain it sounds more emotional okay is is kind of is kind of what i'm getting from because like the way i'm sort of picturing this is in the future when they create like human beings like artificially like westworld kind of shit okay and they've just created this complete artificial being and you know everything about them physically is the exact same as us yeah every like they can do everything that we can yeah and potentially like there's even sort of genetic differences depending on like who makes the person anyway it's besides the point when if they like hooked two people up one fake and one real yeah and cut both of them at the same time and they both went like ow and they sort of experienced that pain of you know cutting through the t-fibers and everything's firing off in their brain and then like how what what's then the only really difference between them is like they've both felt this experience of pain but i guess like in a way, unless you've sort of recreated pure emotion, which is another argument. But I think the only thing that really separates them is that like emotional, the emotional impact of the pain versus the physical. Okay. Um, I, I agree with you that there's an emotional problem, but like at the same time, like emotions are like, uh, you could make an argument that emotions are physical, like they are neurotransmitters and hormones interplaying. And they're released from physical structures. You know, they're, they're in a vesicle, in a cell. They kind of drift around and they're released and then they're absorbed and that produces a response and a neuron fires. So, like, the easy problem of consciousness could map that pathway as well. But mm. in the situation you set up where you have a fake, like a, like a Westworld robot person that's been mm. created, which is like, uh, like a machine, and then you have a real human who's been created uh, 
I don't know, organically. Um, I would say that the robot isn't actually experiencing pain. It doesn't actually feel anything. All that it is, do, it might, it might, there might be an illusion of pain, but like it might yell, it might like clutch its arm or wherever it's been cut. But I, I don't believe that you can like imbue something artificial with sentience. So like, I would say that like, at least I disagree that it's possible. It's, I don't even think that it's possible for the robot to experience pain. I would Mm. just like what I would suppose is happening is that it's been given like there's a particular algorithm for damage to the hand. Mm. And that algorithm generates the same kind of behavior that a real person with a fully functioning uh, nervous system would generate as well. But but yeah. it, that I don't think that gives rise to experience. So what is what is experience then? Well, th- that's the thing. I, yeah. I think that like I think experience is, I think conscious experience of something is like intrinsically human or intrin- or is like a fundamental feature of like advanced forms of life mm. like i don't know whether you could make an argument that an ant is conscious like they have may- maybe like you know maybe like one a billionth percent of the conscious experience that we have of the world like ants don't have a language system as yeah. anywhere near as diverse as ours. Like they don't go to school. Like they don't, they don't have like, maybe they have some drives, but like, maybe they're just basic, like reproductive, you know, like work drives, whatever. Um, yeah. Cause they have like that, like predisp like born with like predisposed behaviors. Yeah. 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 Like based on their roles. Okay. I get you. So yeah. yeah. Okay. So, but like, I didn't, I didn't really answer your question because you said, what is experience then? I would say experience is, Experience is the outcome of experience is the outcome of neuro of like of the brain of the state that your brain is in if your brain has been organically constructed. Okay. But then like then like I th- actually think that's a pretty bullshit argument. I don't even know if I believe that because like if, if you say to me, okay, what if you just get a, like my brain as it is and you put it in a computer, mm. then it should produce the same thing. But then mm. I would say it doesn't have the right vessel for experiencing it. And then what if you say, what if I perfectly copy all your cells and whatever? So I, I don't know. Yeah. So like if like even going past the Westworld robot, a literal copy of you literally the only thing different between you is that one i don't i don't want to say the word artificial because that that just loads the whole no thing. say it say it. I, i'll i'll yeah. treat it yeah yeah yeah, okay. yeah so literally just a clone of you <sighs> yeah like, okay okay even, but- even i'm tricking myself because like the moment i say it's created then your argument comes back to me you know it's like this completely different thing but but okay like okay so like I agree with you. If there is something that is a perfect copy of me, mm. then presumably it has all of my memories and 
all of my it's experienced everything i've experienced presumably mm. i don't see yeah. how it couldn't yeah because everything man-made. yeah everything has been informed like all the parts of its brain have been informed by its experiences which are my experiences yeah but the moment it's made and it occupies a different space in time a different space and yeah so like where would it be if it's right next to me the moment it appears right next to me it's different because it's in a different part of the room it's got different waves of light bouncing off its skin there's you see what i'm saying yeah yeah yeah. so like until it actually exists it's me but but it's yeah okay it's yeah i guess it shares my conscious experience Mm. but then like the moment it appears somewhere it's someone different because it's conscious experience is as as it's different from yours yeah it's different from mine yeah okay okay yeah yeah okay then we didn't touch on what's the second part what's the hard oh oh the hard problem the hard problem okay so the hard problem we kind we we kind of already have touched on it the hard problem is um science can't explain science can't explain the experience of what it's like to feel anything yeah but like because like how would you give an objective account for pain how would you universalize pain yeah you can't yeah like yeah like think about how many times you go like when i the subject that i learned this in was from like this really cool professor and he was like i went to a doctor and i was like i'm having serious my like i'm having serious headaches and then he had a brain scan and the neurologist was like i can't see anything you're not having headaches so like yeah. there's a mismatch there's like an experience of pain mm. and then there's like the scientific method which looks for things and tries to measure them and whatever and then there's a mismatch because like mm. yeah so I, I don't know i just like maybe maybe there are some things that science struggles to um account for but yeah i i absolutely believe that like i don't believe science can explain everything hmm. i think there's there's this like little margin that like separates the more i think about it, that separates like science from like the the true experience of of life and everything that sort of comes with it and i guess maybe that margin is where is, is where experience lies mm. it's just unexplained it's just out of that point where we can explain it mm. Mm. and maybe maybe that's where it should be yeah yeah because like i don't know i, I think there are there'd be all sorts of weird ethical implications of yeah could you imagine if like someone could someone could literally scientifically prove how you fall in love like the feeling of love yeah. i reckon that'd be shit yeah dude <laughs> yeah and like they could and like yeah someone's well, they, probably gonna commercialize it <laughs> yeah well seriously then there'd be like yeah. a tablet and like yeah. you could take a tablet and have the experience yeah and then imagine not even like imagine if you could have the experience without having a partner is that possible though well dude if it's what would just, you, what would you, yeah okay yeah true, if it's true. just like but see that's the thing like does consciousness require like do things like love require an interaction with like something outside outside you like can you Mm. fall in love without actually like 
If you're in a room with nothing in it for your entire life. If you're in a sensory deprivation tank for your entire life. Mm. Can you fall in love? But well, how do you know what love is? Well, can you have the sensations of love? Oh, without being ever told what it was. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's not really, I mean, like, maybe it was like a hundred years ago, they'd probably try that, but there's a shit ton of ethical. <laughs> you can't probably try that experiment now. But that's, that's a curious problem. Yeah, shit. Well, yeah, I mean, I hope. Yeah, I don't know. Sci- science is pretty weird and its boundaries are pretty weird. But Yeah, I was, I've never been good at science. It's just not. <laughs> it's definitely not up my alley, but yeah, this is this is definitely something to think about. I'm kind of in that point where you, you like you ever hit that I'm sure I'm sure you hit this point where you just can't you you think about something so much and it's just like you kind of don't know what to do anymore. <laughs> it's Yeah, you like It's like limbo. Yeah, it's you like, like yeah, crash you, you like crash your brain. Yeah, you're yeah. like paralyzed in thought in many yeah. ways. Yeah, I actually Yeah. Yeah, I think sometimes when like when I get to the point that we got to, which is like science can't explain some things, if I try and pursue that any further and think about why it can't explain some things, then mm. every single time it's like I bankrupt my brain. Yeah, yeah. I, could, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah, like every time. Because I don't even know what, like, I, I don't even know where to begin. Yeah. Like how? Because I feel like, yeah. Yeah, so what were you going to say? I just feel like... You get into the spiral of where it's just thoughts without belief. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're yeah. just like thinking things for the sake of thinking things. But like, yeah. it, like for me anyway, I feel like there's, I have no attachment to whether it's true or not. Yeah, it's just yeah. the thought. Yeah. There's like no guidance. Or, yeah, yeah. 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 You have no, like you almost lose like a sense of like what's right or wrong in that like brief, like haze yeah. of thought. Yeah. Sure, that's really interesting that like without, without like value uh like our our yeah our thoughts like something weird happens to our thoughts maybe without actually like a belief attached to them something yeah weird happens yeah well, that's another topic yeah. but um i feel like that's a rabbit hole yeah dude it's been it's been an hour and a lot yeah um an hour i didn't mean a lot as in as in too much i mean an hour and a lot of minutes um is there anything else that you don't think we've covered well, we did want to talk. Well, you wanted to talk about. I think it's the the original topic that you wanted to talk to me about. So, um, I guess Alex and I met three years ago. Yeah, twenty twenty seventeen. Yeah, because yeah, we were working for the same NGO together, and we just happened to meet on the day we were going on this camp. And to be honest, I don't really remember seeing you too many times after that so <laughs> yeah. like I, I think like it's worth noting that like alex and i technically don't know each other very well yeah now i feel like i know him a lot better yeah like, yeah the past like four, 72 hours yeah and the <laughs> our failed pod um rest in peace um but actually i don't know where i was going with that anyway i think it's just it's just interesting sometimes to have a conversation with someone who you don't know very well because you literally have no pre-attached. There's no predisposed like opinion of what their thoughts are going to be. Yeah, yeah. And again today, like when we were talking, I had no idea what like your like the holes we were going to go down and stuff. So I guess that kind of makes it interesting. But yeah, as I was saying, the original topic that 
Alex actually um, wanted to talk to me about was the economics of coronavirus. (laughs) 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 Which we... (laughs) We've spoken a lot about. Yeah, clearly. (laughs) Um, And yeah, there's there's a bunch of other stuff and obviously we haven't touched on it, but... There's one thing I do want to talk to you about, which I think is probably because like originally when you asked me to talk about this topic, I was like, oh, you know, maybe I'll just talk about like, you know, economic losses and falls in GDP and which industries are going to die. But I just don't feel like that's incredibly interesting because like a lot of the time, yes, it's good to learn about these sort of macroeconomic facts and to understand the state of our economy, but it doesn't seem directly relatable to you and I Mm -hmm. as a consumer. Um, but there is one thing that I think affects everybody, and that is the future of uh, the Australian economy in the sense that this period of isolation is going to change how a lot of people spend. And in the sense that you are going to realize during your periods of staying at home for extended periods of time that you've been wasting money on a lot of things. You've been wasting money on coffees, eating out. People are cooking a lot more at home because they have to, but I'm sure a large majority will start to find joy in that. You know, there's a there's an experience in cooking a meal for yourself, like laboring over it and then like tasting it afterwards and that feeling of like caring for others and providing sustenance to them is quite a rewarding experience. And I think... Yeah, people are going to realize that, wow, I've been spending a shit ton of money on stuff that I don't need to. Like bars, restaurants, cafes, a lot of things in entertainment, like um, more casual entertainment, like maybe, yeah, cinemas, potentially like bowling alleys and stuff like that. Like you are going to realize that you had all these extra things that were affecting your disposable income. And I think after this, a lot of people are just going to not, just going to continue this path that they've been on in isolation and spend less and save that money for other things. I have a strong belief that the tourism industry and the aviation industry are going to bounce back much harder just because you realize the value of saving a bit more, especially for something that's like much more fulfilling, like a holiday and the implication is that, you know, your local cafe and restaurants and a lot of these industries are going to are gonna suffer and mm. retail as well. Like during this time, you can only buy things online. Um, you're going to be used to that convenience. And during this time, all the increased sales are going to be able to be funneled by these businesses into extra fulfillment centers, more delivery services, delivery fees are going to drop. And afterwards, there's no point in going to a shopping center. So that that's the tricky thing. And like in the next six months, there's just going to be, I think, huge changes to the way people spend and behave. And it's kind of going to affect, I guess, how, how we live and the the social implications of that. And I don't really know what I'm asking you in this sense. Like, do you have any thoughts on what I've just said? Yeah. I mean, I actually hadn't thought too much about, about that. Um, yeah. And, and 
that that's like yeah that's a really cool but also really frightening like thing that like our habits as consumers are definitely going to change Mm. um and maybe like semi-permanently because you're right like people are going people are at home people are cooking um pretty much every every industry has been severely damaged apart from maybe like amazon um and like eBay, woolies yeah like supermarkets um yeah like every everything is suffering and you're right like this is a time where uh where people people might and probably should realize that they live a life of excess and Mm. a life of kind of unnecessary consumption like i don't know if bowling alleys are necessary like unless you're like a professional bowler or something um yeah but I, i don't know like my i i i wouldn't be surprised if what you said actually happens that like um people return to normal society after after you know maybe a vaccine is discovered or whatever um but yeah i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't be super surprised if some industries really suffered like yeah uh, like i don't know like basic entertainment things but like I don't know. I feel like some things have such a an important social presence, like cafes, and especially in a place like Melbourne, where like you know the flat white came from Melbourne, mm. um, and yeah, I mean like people were still going to cafes until a few days ago. So I I don't know. Like maybe maybe the places which actually bring people together, maybe those will be the places that stay open, yeah, and, the, and they keep getting business. But like yeah. Maybe like the kind of, uh, maybe the kind of add-on things that aren't yeah. essential, like bowling alleys and, um, yeah, like I don't know, like pinball like cinemas arcades. are going to go down a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, I yeah. mean, cinemas probably have already gone down a lot with they have, Netflix yeah, for and sure. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but I mean, like, my concern is that, like, we're very susceptible to advertising. And I bet there's going to be like a whole new wave of post-corona advertising. Like, want to get back to your normal life? Like, come to our shop. Like, we've got fucking, we've got the stuff that you were doing before corona. Yeah. Um, well, the yeah, the way it's going to change. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. I think obviously the the, the things I was talking about were much more general, but okay. obviously from country to country from state to state that's going to completely differ yeah 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 cafe culture is extremely strong in melbourne you're correct but i think what yeah what's going to change is those maybe restaurants and maybe those the competition is just going to be so much higher i think if you retrospectively think about your spending habits and you think about the things that really bring you value and the things that don't, mm. it is likely that you're going to remove that excess because mm. you've you've gone through the experience of living without it. Yeah, yeah. and you've survived. And, and you've survived. you probably enjoyed life as, oh, I don't know, maybe if you've enjoyed it as much, but yeah. Yeah, as, as much. Mm. Like you'll, you'll probably realize, obviously like there will be a lot of things like people will miss a nice cup of coffee. Mm. I think that's completely true for Melbourne. And the places that provide good coffee will continue to exist. Mm. Um, but 
yeah, it's just going to be it's going to be a strange place. The one of the big things is, I think smart uh, companies will move a lot of their things online. Mm. They're going to have to use this time to digitize and just absolutely like expand their operations online. And everywhere's just going to be sales, man. It's going to be sales everywhere. Really? Because yeah, because like. How else are you going to pull people into your store? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like well, like who who is going to who's going to like go back into crowds after this? I feel like the idea of a crowd has been totally changed in at least in my mind. Like, yeah, dude, I don't even know how comfortable I'm going to feel going back into a crowd now. With dude, sh- yeah, yeah, shaking someone's hand. <laughs> yeah, when is it going to be okay to shake people's hands again? Yeah. Um, seriously and like maybe maybe hands maybe like maybe like you know how there was like the crypto boom at the end of 2017 (laughs) maybe like 2020 (laughs) is the year of like the hand sanitizer boom because seriously like maybe everyone maybe that's going to become and like imagine the consequences of that like people lots of weird things emerge from bacteria that's resistant to hand sanitizer because it kills 99.99%, but that 0.01% survives and then it grows and whatever. And so, like, yeah. if everyone's using hand sanitizer all the time, like, we're not going to, like, the fucking a bat biting a pangolin giving rise to coronavirus. Who knows what's going to come next with, with, like, everyone sanitizing their hands and then returning yeah. to society. Like, yeah. Yeah, because eventually, like, bacteria always adapts. Yeah, yeah. Or there, like there's always a resistant strain. Yeah, yeah, there'll always be a resistance. But I think, like, for in the short term, at least, there's going to be... I think during this time, people have learned so much about hygiene. Yeah. And the implications of not keeping up good hygiene habits. I think, absolutely, even when all this corona shit blows over, people are still going to be using hand sanitizer all the time. Mm. And they're going to be washing their hands a lot mm. so like you know Dettol and all those companies are going to be booming making making bank yeah and then keep making bank and yeah but I think like going into the future this should hopefully teach countries and everywhere everywhere else that you know you have to be prepared like preparation is a preparation is absolutely key and I think like we talk about this often. Like, have you ever heard of like the idea of like a black swan event? Yeah, but but go go for those who don't. Yeah, yep. so a black swan event is um, something that is not seen coming. It's unprecedented. It has incredibly large repercussions economically, socially, and basically impacts all facets of life. Kind of what you're seeing right now. And then after the fact, everyone goes like, "Oh, how could you not see it coming?" Mm. So, do you think coronavirus is a black swan event? Okay. Well, I think I think that we will look back. So, yeah, a few days ago, you told me that Bill Gates, in a TED talk a few years ago, said that the next big thing, the next big yeah. threat, is going to be a pandemic. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we had SARS, uh, a respiratory virus, in the early two thousands. Um. And that kind of, that didn't have, that didn't reach the level of pandemic. Then we had Ebola Mm. and that didn't reach the level of pandemic either. Um, And so maybe like, maybe we won't look back and, and we won't have, I don't think it would have been reasonable to say that it was 
that it makes sense for a pandemic to have happened. I think what makes sense is that uh, our, I think the black swan event will make more sense through the lens of the economy. So it make our current system can't adapt. Can't our current system doesn't support anything that's going to put the current structures out of order. So like whatever it is, a pandemic, um, like a war, uh, any kind of thing that, that, uh, that gets in the way of the normal way people organize their lives. I think that is the thing that will make sense to us that like, um, yeah, that like maybe, maybe like capitalism has to change if it's going to accommodate these kinds of things in the future. Oh, it has to, it has to. Yeah. But I I don't know, like maybe I just don't know enough about like epidemiology and, and viruses and things. Um, because maybe, maybe it was like very likely that there was going to be some kind of virus at some point that really ripped across, but I don't know. I didn't, I didn't really, I'm not really familiar with that kind of literature, but what do you think? And neither am I, to be honest, from, from the, the virus point of view, um, I think when a lot of the f- when a lot of the facts come come out in the next couple of years, all all the different events leading up to it, uh, yeah, I do think people will will claim it was a black swan. Mm. But isn't that always the case? Like, but yeah, that that, yeah. that is always the case. Yeah. But I think like at the moment, like yeah, no one's really experienced anything like this. Not since maybe Spanish flu. Or Spanish flu. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I was gonna say. Um, but even then, there wasn't the volume of international travel. Yeah. 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 There, so, it was a different time back then because, yeah. like, there wasn't this huge aviation industry where you could just, like, move shit from, like, wherever you want in the world to wherever you want to go. But, yeah, it's um, it's a tough one. But I think, yeah, it's more important that... And honestly, I'm, like, just very interested in, like, understanding, like, the ramifications of all this. Like, yes, it's... um. It's obviously a terrible time right now, but like uh, the next generation will literally, this is going to be in like economic textbooks and like they're literally going to study this day in, day out. And I think it's, I think it's interesting in a way to sort of like, um, like know that you're living through a big, big moment in history. Yeah. And like in a weird way. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It is really interesting. And like, even like I'm, I'm really interested in, in ways in which governments are getting around the coronavirus like uh not as in getting around like fuck yeah coronavirus is fucking hot shit <laughs> <laughs> but, but like you know trying to like uh um prepare or like prevent like another financial crisis or another recession but mm. maybe like yeah what what's what's the actual definition of a recession like three quarters of Three consecutive quarters of decline? Yeah. Okay. I believe that's... Oh, is it two? No, I think it's three, yeah. Okay. Yeah, of the, like consecutive decline. And then, yeah, at the moment it's... um, Yeah, as I was telling you the other day, I think the worst is yet to come. Yeah, yeah. Why? Wait. Okay, wait. I want to ask you why you think that is. But shit, what was I saying? Oh, oh. So like one thing that we haven't spoken about is something that the Australian government seems to be doing, which is a universal basic income. Mm. Um, people who are out of work are going to get money. Yeah. 
a lot. I think it's like a thousand five hundred dollars a fortnight. Dude, it's a lot. Yeah, um, it's a good amount. Yeah, and also people who are eligible for, you know, pensioners, students, and stuff will get uh, their welfare will be doubled, and they'll also get a once-off seven hundred and fifty dollar payment. And presumably, this is meant to be like some kind of trickle up, tri- trickle up economics, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. But then, like, if we go back to the the Jeff rate, the Jeff model, where after this period, people are going to people aren't going to return to their normal spending habits. How is mm. trickle up economics? One, can you actually define trickle up economics? And two, like. Surely trickle up economics isn't going to be the most suitable thing because people are going to be like, what the fuck? I don't need to go to a bowling alley. What the fuck? I don't need these clothes and shit. But yeah, so basically what's happening right now is this is a cash injection. Um, We are essentially receiving money from the government to spend. Mm -hmm. So our economy does not collapse. So when you think about GDP is essentially the output of all goods and services. Mm. And the trickle up is that they, from the top, the government, inject it into the bottom, i.e. us. And basically, we spend at stores. Stores presumably have wholesalers. And then those wholesalers, there's like a, there's freight, there's import and export. And then eventually, people start paying tax again. Tax revenue, um, that goes back to the government and then it's this cycle because the, the easiest way to think about how an economy works is it's it's like a cycle like everything it's a moving everything affects another thing mm. and it's all about what point you're changing to get what effects you want i haven't actually thought about what you what you just asked me in the sense that like how will just these cash injections change the way people spend and i think at the end of the day, as long as they're spending, it's it's fine hmm. because that's what's going to get the economy moving because that's right. what's happening right now. Consumer confidence is incredibly low. Like everyone's freaking the fuck out. Like we don't know what we want to do. And in so many ways, consumer confidence is one of the, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's how you and I as consumers, as members that live in this economy feel about the overall outlook of the economic conditions that Mm. are around us. And that affects so much of what we do. It affects how we spend, it affects how we save, um, it affects how we just interact as a society. And I think when we get these cash injections, consumer confidence is supposedly meant to go up. Mm. That is like a belief. You have more money, therefore you have a higher predisposition to spend it. Yeah, right, right. And that that is the most important thing so besides the fact that some industries or some retailers may collapse and fail in the next couple months when we start to recover, um, I think what they're doing is correct because this is they're getting the money, they're getting the economy running and they're getting people to spend. Mm. And at the moment, that's kind of the most important thing. I think later on, people will start to address the issue of collapsing industries or, and collapsing brands and all that sort of stuff. But for now, the most important thing is that you and I spend money. Okay. As in like, that's the most, like, as in that's actually what you think. Like in order to support the economy, the most important thing for us to do is spend money. Yes. Okay. Right. Yeah. So in order to like keep Australia, the Australian economy from like falling, we have to buy stuff. 
we do have to, yeah, consume. You don't have to necessarily buy stuff. You can buy a service. Right. Um, you Because that it the idea of spending just supports so much more than just yeah yeah I one guess, thing yeah one thing like you can view it as a materialistic thing but you're literally keeping people in jobs yeah yeah like right. that because when you buy something someone else receives money yeah and they can spend that money and they can spend that money on people they support hmm. you know they chill their children their parents and it's yeah it's the cycle that breeds out but it does start with there has to be the transaction that kicks off the cycle Mm. and what it is right now is just spending shit wow wow and like do you have any predictions as to like like is there going to be a big crisis financial crisis bigger than like bigger than what we've already seen in like the all lords and wall street um i think a lot of companies face similar problems and one one big one that sort of what needs to happen is it's kind of like a a race in many ways for a lot of different retailers and competitors to sort of how do you come out of this as unscathed as possible i i honestly i i personally just can't fathom the implications because a lot of the time it's just that i in all honesty i just don't understand it well enough yeah to make any sort of big predictions like that um just kind of from because at the moment a lot of places are just scrambling to sort of deal with this like um deal with this pandemic we just want everyone's like kind of on the same page of trying to reduce the number of cases to try solve and try find a vaccine like New Balance stopped making shoes. They're making face masks now. Wow. Like like stuff like that. It's it's like a redirection of all your resources and basically what companies were built to do in order to address a common cause. And I think in doing that, like uh, people are sacrificing parts of their their strategies, their corporate strategies, and they might lose money, but I guess like in a lot of ways you're gaining something else that's technically not money it's like public support i guess hmm. your how you're viewed as a company to the public is very important and like it, it is just hard to make these these big predictions i think personally i'm i'm a true believer of that the worst is yet to come hmm. but where we see that happen is another question that I don't know the answer to mm. is the is the honest question. It's the honest answer. Sorry. Mm. Yeah. Shit. Okay. Um, whoa, dude. We've like literally spoken about everything. Um, oh my god. Wow. <laughs> this file is one point one gigs. Dude, mine's two point two nine. Why is it two point two nine? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, oh, maybe not. Yeah. yeah anyway shit dude well hey um i mean like i i'm gonna have to have you back on the podcast at some point because we've got we've got a lot of we've got a lot lot of shared ground yeah 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 Um, Yeah, for sure but dude anytime thank you thank you for taking hours out of your day and thank you for being an, an an economic expert can i just uh put a disclaimer in i'm not an economist 
Do not take any of Dude, my everyone, advice. Actual everyone investment fucking advice. Listen, everyone listen to Jeff. <laughs> everyone go fucking buy everything. Uh, and then like afterwards, it's just like, wait, we didn't need to spend all that money. <laughs> Fuck you, Jeff. Dude. And people come like... I can see the headline already. Fucking like alternative podcast <laughs> prevents Australian global financial crisis. <laughs> I started the, I started the next start GFC. The new wave, man. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, the child, the, the bearer of the GFC. Yeah, I know, I know. Shit. Yeah, so um, those are just, yeah, again, those are just my predictions. I don't know. I didn't actually even make any big predictions. I guess like the big one was the consumer behavior, but. Yeah, um, shit. That's fuck. Yeah, man. That's well, TBD. Yeah. TBD. No, no, no. But hey, I think you're right. I mean, I already feel, I already feel like I'm consuming differently. All yeah. I want, all I want, man, all I want is like oat milk and it's all sold out. Um, and so now Fuck. I have to buy different types of milk, man. It's bullshit. Well, have you considered like make it yourself? Yeah, I have, but like, actually, no, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe you should. You're a smart man. Yeah. And then like this moment right now, what you've, you've just experienced that maybe I should make it now. And then you get into the habit of that and you don't buy oat milk okay, anymore. And then, and then the economy and then we have the GFC. Yeah. And then that, that's how it happens. Alex makes his own oat milk <laughs> and, then, there's and then the world is fucked. <laughs> <laughs> that's literally it. That's my prediction. That's true. Well, no, you're right. If people are like, if people are making instead of expecting things to be made, then yeah, shit's going to yeah. change. Things change, yeah. And like, I, I don't know, like maybe the strategy for what's the brand of oat milk that you normally buy? Uh, Oatly? Oatly, yeah. Maybe they become more of a distribution business or they sell raw products. Right, for and people. so you're cutting the cost of creating the product and you're just selling it to people directly. Well, there you go. So yeah, it's all about adaption at the end of the day. People Shit. just need it. Yeah, yeah. Shit. Well, Jeff, man, thanks very much for coming on. Dude, thanks for having me on, man. This was a blast. Yeah, I've had, I've had so much fun. So I love this. Yeah. Thanks. So hopefully, hopefully the fire was fine and this actually (laughs) sees the light of day. Yeah, man. If it doesn't, I mean, I'm gonna cry if it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Shit. Uh, Okay.